Hello, and welcome to When in Doubt Pixie, the multiple choice podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lindsay Jones. And I'm the other host, Sophie Lee. On this podcast, we ask a new multiple choice question every week, discuss all the answers, and then give you our verdict at the end. So what is our question this week, Sophie? Our question this week is, what is our favorite classical Beauty and the Beast story? So the reason that we're looking at this question is because the idea of like an animal bridegroom has been around forever in like folklore from all around the world. Now to us as Americans in the 21st century, that means Beauty and the Beast, the French tale. Right. And that, you know, it is the most popular one overall. That's what people reference in like folklore studies. Uh-huh. But it's obviously been around much longer than that. I'm sure you guys have seen all of our episodes or listened to all of our episodes. And so you know that we learned for our Christmas traditions episode about the, what is it, fleeing pancake story? Yes. And we we shared some speculation about why that would be a common archetype. So similarly, why is it a common fairy tale archetype to have a story about a girl who gets married to an animal husband? Right. The commonly accepted theory or wisdom is that it's probably a way to ease girls into the idea of marrying complete strangers in days of arranged marriages. Yeah. It's like, it's fine. It'll work out, you know? Yeah. If you're virtuous and you are loyal to your husband, even though he's being very weird and mysterious, it'll pay out for you. Yeah. That, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how that kind of develops in each of these stories that we're going to be doing. Lindsay, you were the one to choose the um, the question for this week. And so I was wondering, like, what is it about Beauty and the Beast stories that appeals to you? I personally like stories about the transformative power of love, mm-hmm. which is a very dangerous kind of idea, but I find it really fun in fiction. Yeah. Well, and not only transformative, but also the power dynamics inherent in Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. We touched on this in the very first episode we ever did for this podcast. Right. Um, episode one of season one about millennial YA heroines when we were talking about Edward and Bella from Twilight. Right. I love a story that's about like a normal person uh-huh. who's in love with a very strong, powerful person and the strong, powerful person is whipped for the normal person. Yes, it's Which great. in a lot of modern retellings of Beauty and the Beast stories is very much the case. Right, yeah. Love makes makes fools of us all, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about Beauty and the Beast stories, Sophie? Um, I'm with you. I mean, I a big thing that appeals to me is the sort of the redemptive power of love. So not kind of similar to transformative, but like the, the, mm-hmm. the idea of the Beauty and the Beast story is as normally being about some sort of redemption you know mm-hmm. the there's a sort of not justice but like making up for past wrongdoings or past um y- you know past 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 mistakes that i find mm-hmm. really appealing and also the fact that those that that redemption happens through love is again very very appealing to me And I think it varies from story to story, as Mm -hmm. we'll see. Sometimes it'll be that the beast is a good person. Right. And so then it's fun to read a story about someone, you know, seeing through to the underneath. And that's a a very satisfying story in itself. Yeah, absolutely. But 
then you do have those kinds of stories that are, I'm not going to tell you anything. You just have to do everything I say because I'm your husband and your loyalty will be rewarded, which is, you know, less Ugh. appealing to my modern sensibilities. Yeah, there, there's, I mean, yeah, there's definitely something to be said about like also just the appeal of this is also why I love arranged marriage or like marriage of convenience as a fic trope is because mm-hmm. it's the idea that if only somebody would know us, if if then they would love us, you know. Yeah, um, which is a really I think that's a, I think that's like a at the heart of a lot of these stories that we're going to look into. So what are the stories that we're going to be looking into, Sophie? Okay, so preemptive apology because I'm going to butcher these first of all because yeah, and then second of all because I'm like miserably sick. So, first uh story that we're going to look at is one that you guys have probably heard is Eros and Psyche. It's option A. Option B is a story called The Girl Who Married a Snake from the Indian Panchatantra. Uh, okay. Um, option C <laughs> is an Irish story about Asheen and Neve. And option D is another story that you may have heard. Um, and it's called East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Those are our four choices. So jumping right into it, we'll begin with Eros and Psyche. And Eros and Psyche is like the granddaddy of Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Like realistically, uh-huh. we shouldn't call them Beauty and the Beast stories. We should call them Eros and Psyche stories. Yeah. It's like prototypical search for the lost husband. Right. But let's give you a little bit of background here. Eros and Psyche is a Latin, you know, Greek slash Latin tale from The Golden Ass by Apuleius. <laughs> Sorry, I I'm know. a child. <laughs> I know. It was also called the Metamorphoses, but not the Metamorphoses by Ovid. Right. So in order to distinguish, they call it the Golden Ass. Yes. And that's actually the only complete book that still exists that was written in Latin, like, of the period. Right. So that's fun. Um, so that's that's where Eros and Psyche, as we know it, comes from. But there's been a lot of different translations, obviously. Right. Allow me... To briefly summarize the tale of Eros and Psyche, when we discuss it, we're going to be talking in more detail, but I just want to give you guys a very brief outline of the events. Right. Psyche is a beautiful girl. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, is very angry about this. Uh Aphrodite sends her son Eros to torment Psyche because, you know, as vengeance. Yeah. Instead, Eros falls in love with Psyche. Psyche's parents send her to a mountain because an oracle said so. Uh And she is taken to be Eros' wife on the condition that she never looks at him. She does because her sisters tell her to, because they say he might be a beast that's going to eat her. So she looks at him. He flees. Psyche goes to Aphrodite for help. Aphrodite still hates Psyche. So she gets four impossible tasks, which she eventually completes. But at the end, she's cursed to a deep sleep. So Eros wakes her up, goes to Zeus, makes her into a goddess. Yeah. Happily ever after. And that's the story. And happily ever after. So, like, what kind of stuff are we um, interested in with these stories? Like, what are what what are we trying to learn about them, Lindsay? I think one of the main things that I'm reading with an eye toward is that idea that these stories are supposed to be teaching young girls about what to expect from marriage and relationships with their husbands. Right, yeah. So I'm interested in what it has to say about that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then, you know, generally, gender roles, trust, that kind of thing. yeah. And yeah. for this story specifically, mm-hmm. people have read it as an allegory for self-actualization because psyche is the Greek word for soul. Right. So there there might be that angle as well. Okay. Yeah, so let's dig into it. I thought 
um, something interesting is that, so as I mentioned, this is such an old story. There's been quite a lot of translations into English right. that emphasize different things that have different aspects. So I thought some of those were kind of interesting. Right. As I mentioned, Psyche's very beautiful and Aphrodite didn't like that. But there's another aspect to the story that varies version to version. Right. Sometimes Psyche is sad and loveless and alone because right. she's so beautiful that mortal men don't dare to like love her right. as a person. So that's one take. But mm -hmm. then there's another take where Aphrodite actively cursed Psyche to always be alone right? because she was angry at her. And I obviously think that the first one is more interesting. Yeah, it's more organic. Yeah, and just mm -hmm. it has something more interesting to say about, you know, the need for human companionship. Right. The next one that you have um, on your in your notes is one of the most interesting points of the story for me, which is, you know, like in some versions of the story, Eros just like he sees Psyche and he falls in love with her, right? In mm -hmm. other versions of the story, he falls in love with her because he pricks or scratches himself with his own, you know, love arrow. Right. Even in the ones where he pricks himself with his love arrow, it's usually because he's so surprised by how beautiful he, that she is that she, he jumps. Right. But even so, yeah, that's like a huge part of the story. I think the more accepted version is that he pricked himself with his own arrow. Right. But the fact of the existence of the idea that he just falls in love with her... That's interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm all about that free will, that that non-love potion life. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's just, it's it's so, it's so interesting, um, you know, to kind of see all the different variations uh, and, and, you know, just, just, just like, I mean, I'm always here for a good love story and like just the moment of mm -hmm. falling in love is very important. Yeah. And then another one that I thought was interesting was, so in the story, the reason that Psyche looks at Eros is because she gets very lonely in the palace and right. she asks Eros to let her please have her sisters visit her sisters visit and they recommend that Psyche double check that Eros is not a monster who's planning to eat her because he's being very suspicious right now I think in the commonly accepted kind of canon right Psyche's sisters are mean and hateful and jealous of Psyche's good fortune so they tell her this specifically to screw her over and break her husband's trust. Right. But in some versions, the sisters are genuinely concerned for Psyche's safety. Yeah, or they're just, I mean, they just don't know better. They're just like, bruh, like this is, this guy is really weird and he's creepy and, you know, he's like, he's catfishing Yeah, like you, you. should check up on this. Yeah, like you're being catfished, I think. Yes. So yeah. that's going to be another... Another, like, trope we see in Beauty and the Beast stories is wicked sisters or wicked mothers, wicked female family members who, you know, drive a wedge between Beauty and the Beast by breaking trust. Right, yeah. But I'm very interested in the versions where it's it's genuine concern, you know, for uh -huh. a girl's safety in a marriage. Yeah. I, I think those ones are more interesting. And that also it ties into um, something else I found, which is that C.S. Lewis wrote a novel called Till We Have Faces. Yes, he did. Which is a retelling of this story from the point of view of Psyche's eldest sister. Yes, I have not read this novel, but it's like really well regarded. Yeah, I also have not read it, full disclosure. But I think, you know, C.S. Lewis is on the money with that kind of nugget that there's something there in the characters of the concerned family members of beauty. Yeah, absolutely. Now that we've talked about some interesting 
you know, differences and the implications that that might have version to version, I wonder, so what is your, you know, final take? What do you think young Roman women were learning about, were supposed to learn about marriage and love and husbands from this story? Okay, so looking at it from a sort of time period lens, historical yeah. lens, then I would say, yeah, I would say like this is this pretty prototypical trust your husband, you know, like I wouldn't say trust in the gods, but you know, like like justice <laughs> will be done at the very at the end, you know, that kind of thing. Um Yeah. And I think something really fun or interesting about this story is that it is a search for the lost husband story. So when Eros leaves, Psyche goes on quests to regain him. Yeah. In some stories, she's wandering for years before she finally gets to Aphrodite to start her quests. Right. So she suffers for the relationship. So you could take that kind of moral too, right? Yeah. As far as like, you need to trust your husband and stuff, but you also need to, you can't just sit in your tower and he'll come back to you. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You got to go out Once there Once you get break him. his trust. Yeah. Which is also interesting because, I mean, um, one a point that we haven't discussed is, like, when does Psyche fall for Eros, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that would be really interesting. And also, I mean, my romantic soul is, like, dying to start figuring something out about that. Like, what drives her to go looking for him, you know? Yes. So I think some some versions say, like, when she sees him in the light of the candle, she realizes that he's very beautiful. But mm. um, I think more interesting are the versions where... Eros is invisible during the day yes. and is a very lovely husband and a giving lover and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh -huh. she falls in love with him and he's invisible. Right. Which I think is more interesting than those kinds of stories where he's just not in the house and then at night he sneaks into bed, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I I would I wish C.S. Lewis would write a story from Psyche's point of view and tell us about, you know, what motivates her to go to literally the underworld to save this relationship maybe we need to hit up the lady who wrote the song of achilles and and, and see what she has to say mm. yeah probably all right probably a good idea yeah so eros and psyche is a story where the main character is beauty but our next option option b is the opposite it's a very rare case of beast being the main character yeah i guess technically it's more like beast his parents are the main character yes Anyway, this is the girl who married a snake from the Panchatantra of Vishnu Sharma from about 300 BCE. Mm -hmm. Again, I will just give a quick gist so that we can all know the basic skeleton and then we'll talk about it in more detail as we discuss it. Right. So a Brahmin and his wife are childless. They pray for a child. His wife gives birth to a snake. Now, the whole village is like, you need to get rid of that snake. It's going to bite you. But she's like, no, I'm going to raise him with love. And she does. When he's grown, she asks her husband, the Brahmin, to please find their son a wife. He's understandably a, a little skeptical, but, you know, nonetheless, for his wife, he goes forth looking for a bride. Right. He goes to his friend's house, and his friend says, marry him to my daughter. Uh-huh. A sight unseen, because I trust you, Brahmin. I'm sure your son is lovely. Yes. The girl goes, finds her fiancé as a snake, but keeps her father's word, and she's a good wife to the snake. Then, one evening... A man shows up in her house and says, hey, I'm your husband. This is my snake skin that I shed at night. So that's a pretty good outcome. So she's happy with that. Uh -huh. And then at some point, the Brahmin, the snake's father, sees this happening and throws the snake skin into the fire, which frees his son from this curse. Right. 
Now, there was a lot less um, variation in versions because I couldn't find too many versions in English. Uh-huh. But there were a couple differences version to version. Right. So, Sophie, what do you think about this story and marriage, parenthood, trust, love, honor, etc.? What kind of morals is this fairy tale teaching us? Uh, well, first of all, um, what a trip. <laughs> I know. So much happens in this story. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think, again, I'm a sentimental soul. And I thought that this, I mean, I think it's, it's very, it's a, overall, it seems like a pretty sweet story. You know, um, I think it has interesting things to say about, like you said, like motherhood and accepting your children the way that they are, even if they are a snake, a literal snake. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with like your, the person, I guess, that your father has promised you to um, sort of accepting that. There are, uh, I read a couple of the versions where the villagers actually challenge the girl because they're like, oh, you know, she's too good for this snake guy. Um, mm -hmm. And she goes, no, like my dad promised me to marry this guy, so I'm going to marry him. And, you know, and it works out fine. And it does. Yeah. I read a couple of versions that are very specific, right? Like she shows up, she's like, let me prepare you a beautiful box with some cushions and I will give you the best food, you know? Yeah. And it, it does work out for her. Yeah. It probably, I mean, it probably helps that she's got, you know, supportive parents-in-law who are like, thank you for marrying our son. Uh, yes. Literal snake. Yes. It's also interesting that the sort of, the curse that um, the snake is supposedly under um it's never explained it's a very soft magic system in this fairy tale um <laughs> yeah yeah not much world building was done about the exact nature of this shape-changing magic yeah exactly um but it's interesting that he was cursed but also that um the way in which the curse is broken supposedly right yeah the setup of it i don't know if anybody has seen penelope the movie, maybe from 2006, starring Christina Ricci and James McAvoy. Ooh. But it's a very similar setup. So according to the snake, the situation is, so he's a snake, obviously. Apparently he can turn into a man at night, but the only way for him to just be a man all the time is for someone to destroy the snakeskin without him asking them to destroy the snakeskin. Yeah. So kind of like a show of unconditional love. Yeah. And I find it very interesting that it's not his wife who does that. She's content to live with him as a man at night. Uh-huh. It's his father who busts into their marriage chamber and just, like, yeets the snakeskin into the fireplace. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, it's a, a story, like I said, a story more about parenthood and the relationship of, like, Beast and his family than it yeah. is about Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, pretty much. Although, I mean, it is interesting to note that, like, at least as far as we know, the snake doesn't start turning into a man until he gets married. So there's, yeah. I wonder what's up with that, you know? So maybe there is something in the power of beauty to, you know, to bring out this other side of the snake, her husband. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense because, yeah, that is the reason that his father had the opportunity to see what was going on is because he was with his wife. Right. So, yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. I also thought the role of his mother was very interesting. Yeah. So in some versions, this childless couple prays and then just falls pregnant. But in some of them, a voice literally is like, don't worry, I'm going to give you a really cool son. Yeah. Right? Right. And the wife, the mother, is the one who has faith in the machinations of this god, right? 
Right. Like, they had a snake, and he was very charming and wonderful. He was uh-huh. just a snake, you know? No opposable thumbs. Man. And Rip. the Brahmin, the father, is like, I don't know about this snake, and she's the one who has to champion him. And when the snake gets older, she's the one who has to weepingly beg her husband to look for a wife for their son. Uh-huh. Because he was just not going <laughs> to bother with anything, you know? Yeah. It, I think it would have been more satisfying if the mother was the one who threw away the snake skin at the end, personally. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and then, so, I mean, I think it would be super interesting to see, like, you know, because it's like, is she told that she's going to have this awesome son? And so she's like, yes, I have this rock hard faith that I'm everything is going to turn out okay. Or does she just take it, like, on her own faith, you know, and just mm-hmm. be like of her own will decide to keep her son even though you know he didn't quite come out the way that she was expecting yeah i think there's a lot of room for that in the variations of the translations right yes where sometimes it is just she was not guaranteed anything and the village is actively like you need to kill the snake because it's gonna bite you right and she's like that is my son never talk to me or my son ever again Uh Uh uh-huh and i you know i root for that yeah, it's 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 got some interesting things to say about personhood, too, I think. Um, and again, like, you know, you can really easily liken this to y- any situation where parents get a child that they were not that doesn't turn out the way that they were expecting, you know, mm-hmm. be it whether that child is, you know, in some way maybe disabled, like in this case, does not have does not have opposable thumbs. Um, right. You know, maybe, maybe the child just doesn't want to, you know, it's your dream, dad, not mine, that kind of situation. And so it's there. I think that there's something also to be said about accepting like your own flesh and blood. Um, yeah, maybe how it's easier for a mom to do that because like a dad can kind of disown a child because they're like, well, you know, they're not really my kid. That's an, which is a terrible move to make, but like, right. A mom can never really do that because like, the baby human or baby snake in this case came out of her like that cannot be denied <laughs> right yeah so yeah i think this fairy tale has a lot to say about parenthood but to wrap up i wonder what you think it says about you know marriage as far as again like teaching girls what to expect and what to do in a marriage yeah i think you were really onto something interesting about like parenthood and loving a child who maybe didn't come out the way you expected yeah because I think the exact same thing can be applied to a girl who's maybe in an arranged marriage. And maybe your husband isn't exactly what you expected. But if you, you know, honor him and do your wifely duties or whatever, you'll find that there's more about him to like than you thought. Yeah, like something about and also maybe something about filial piety and honoring promises and things like that. And like, if you do that, if you don't, if you don't jump ship at the first indication of trouble, then you will be rewarded in the long run. So that's a little bit of a, you know, th- that story, there's a lot of kind of layers of mystery and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of an interesting contrast to the next story that we're going to be looking at. Right, Lindsay? Right. Because Ashina <laughs> Niev is like, okay, so first of all, full disclosure, Ashina Niev. So this is an Irish fairy tale from the Fenian cycle. Right. And the animal husband version is actually like not the more attested version at all of the way these two got together Uh but this is a this is the beauty and the beast episode so that's the version we're going to be talking about okay right so asheen is a poet warrior son of a very famous irish folklore figure right niev is the princess of the you know land of eternal fairies or whatever however you want to 
um, translate it. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like a un unaging fairy being. Yes. And her dad's the king. So here's the gist of this story. Tirnanog is the land of the fairies. The king of Tirnanog holds trials every seven years to see if someone can beat him in contest and therefore take his throne. He's undefeated, so he asks an oracle, you know, am, am I just going to reign forever? No one's ever going to beat me, right? And the oracle <laughs> says the only one who can defeat him is his son-in-law. So the king of Tirnanog curses his daughter, Niev, to have the head of a pig so that, you know, he'll never get a son-in-law because she's literally pig-headed. Ha. Right. So Niev is like, forget that, goes to Ireland across the sea to seek a husband to break this curse, and she finds Asheen, who, uh-huh. you know, is a very impressive figure. So she straight up is like, listen, I know that I have a pig head, but I'm telling you now, I am cursed to have this pig head, and if you marry me, I will go back to my beautiful self, and you will be the prince of Tirnanog. And he's like, that sounds like a great deal, can do. He marries her. She reverts to being beautiful and becomes the king of Tirnanog. Defeats her father-in-law, or his father-in-law. Suck it. Take that. So yeah, this is a standout Beauty and the Beast story because firstly, the Beast is, you know, the female half of this heterosexual couple. Right. And Beauty is the male half. Right. But also because so many Beauty and the Beast stories do have this requirement of blind trust like i'm not going to explain anything i'm going to be very mysterious you just have to be a good wife and not ask any questions and you will be rewarded right this one niav is like i'm telling you right now i am cursed i don't just have a pig head and we can very easily solve this problem Uh uh-huh uh-huh which i love yeah we love communication do you think that that would have flown or do you think that um do you think she would have needed to do that or, or that the beast partner would have needed to do that if if it was the traditional gender role of the girl being human and then the, the, the guy being a beast? I think it's hard to say because the other kind of hallmark about Beauty and the Beast and the reason, like, you can't ask questions is because you're already married and you're living with them. Right. Like, you're in their house and you're under their control and you can't leave. Right. Whereas, like, Ashin is, like, on a hunt and Nia shows up on the hunt and is like, what up? Let me explain my situation. Yeah. Like, I just don't see how, even if you flip the genders, like, if female Ashin was still a hunter and male Niav was still, like, a fairy prince. Yeah, I true. just, I don't see how you could get that same dynamic of, like, Ashin is trapped in Niav's house. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know what I mean? Which yeah. Which is a very important part of, of that kind of story. Yeah, that's true. It's true. It's definitely, definitely, definitely an odder couple these two yeah we don't get to know too much because this is just i mean so the other version is more attested but the other version is literally like she sees him and marries him because Mm -hmm. the way their meet cute is not the important part of their story yeah so there's not there's not too much detail here Mm -hmm. but i what i also think is interesting about this story is again the the figure of like niav's father so like the girl who married a snake we have beast's father in the story as an important character right an ass. Whereas, like, if you think of, like, Disney Beauty and the Beast and that kind of French version, uh-huh. the Beast has, like, no family, no context. Right. And, yeah, in this one, he's the antagonist. And I what I like about it is it has a certain kind of Oedipus-style feeling to it, where mm-hmm. the whole reason this entire thing happens is because an oracle was stirring the pot. Right. And, yeah, the, he kind of plays himself. 
Yeah. Which I think is fun in a story. Hopefully he didn't get uh, killed in, you know, his single combat with uh, a Sheen. And so then he gets to, you know, just uh, hang out with his really cool son-in-law and maybe babies. I don't know. Hard to say. He can just enjoy his retirement. I think in the version I read, I don't think they mentioned it. It could have been anything. It could have been like a foot race, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. It could. I mean, probably it was combat. That sounds, you know, more impressive for to fight for the kingship using combat. Yeah. But I don't I don't think I in the version I read, I don't think I saw a particular uh-huh. contest. Yeah. So, like, what do you feel like this says about gender roles and, and marriage and that kind of thing? I think that if this was the more popular version, we'd be better off. Agreed. Because like I said, it kind of really does promote just communication. Uh huh. And, you know, to an extent, maybe you could read that as like a woman should have no secrets from her husband, which fine. But the husband should have no secrets from his wife, you know. Yeah, agreed. It's just a problem solving power couple Mm -hmm. where literally she's like, so I see that you're very hot and a very accomplished man. I, too, am hot under this pig head. And that's a problem you can help me solve. And then they do like. Yeah, he's just game for it. He's like, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah, I think that that's a good lesson, you know, for people to take away is like, talk about your problems with your partner. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe you will become king of the fairyland. Yeah. And then Rip Van Winkle yourself away from everybody you've ever loved. Yes, well. Which is the part two of the story. That's fine. The other fun thing about this story is that Asheen, our beauty, is actually the product of an animal bride situation himself. So it's like two generations of it. Uh huh. Which I just thought was a fun fact. His mom was cursed to be a deer. And, you know, she, again, like his dad mentor on a hunt. That seems to be, to be the way these men meet their wives. Uh huh. You know, she met the conditions to be human. They fell in love. She fell pregnant. Then she turned back into a deer while pregnant, left the human baby she birthed next to a tree, never seen again. Oof. So, that's rough. yeah, it's just a generational thing for these poor men. Yeah, that's now that's an interesting, you know, I'm 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 real big on bloodlines. Right. Mm-hmm. And and stories of like properties or magic powers or or whatever that follow the bloodline. And so that that's interesting to me. That's intriguing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm I know and I will now shut up and save it for the minisode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that being said, I want to move on to our last option. Option yeah. D. East of the sun, west of the moon. Woot woot. So this one is more like Eros and Psyche in that it's a search for the lost husband where beauty has to actually like go on a quest. Right. Which is fun. Uh So anyway, east of the sun, west of the moon. Let me not get ahead of myself here. This is a Norwegian fairy tale that was collected into a book of fairy tales in 1845. So Uh definitely like a later version than all... It's not exactly classical. Right. But, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's just that when it was collected was slightly later than classical. Right. So allow me to briefly summarize this. And it's hard to briefly summarize this. A lot goes on in this story. But I did my best. Okay. So a white bear asks for the daughter of a poor man in exchange for riches. She says no initially, but eventually does go with him to a beautiful castle And he, as a man, joins her at night with no candles on in pitch darkness. Yep. She gets lonely. She goes home. And her mother tells her to check that he isn't a monster. Right. She does. And now she's ruined everything. And 
he has to go and marry uh, the daughter of his stepmother, who is a troll, in a palace east of the moon and west of the sun. Or the other way. East of the sun, west of the moon. Yes. So the girl, the youngest daughter, wanders in search of her husband. She collects several items along her quest. She gets help from the winds, etc. She makes it to this palace. There she barters the items she collected for chances to see him. And eventually the two of them hatch a plan. And the prince enacts the plan. It succeeds. The trolls are defeated. And the girl gets to marry the prince slash white bear. Right. And again, that's like hugely skimming. There's a lot that goes on in this story. Right. Um, but because it is a more recent collection, there are there's not that much variation in mm-hmm. translations of this story. Right. So we won't be talking about that so much, but there's a lot to unpack in this fairy tale. Yes. So I had heard this fairy tale before this episode. Uh-huh. But I hadn't read, like, the original, original version. Uh-huh. And when I was reading it, I didn't know that it was so Christian. Yes. I did not know. So yeah. it doesn't come up at all until, you know, like, it doesn't come up. It's just, like, they don't mention it at all. There's trolls and there's bears and whatever. But then uh-huh. when we get to the palace and she's talking about, you know, trying to save him from the trolls, he's like, yeah, these dirty trolls who do magic and have long noses and they're really greedy for gold and... They can't clean things right. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And they capture good Christians and keep them in dungeons. I'm like, stop right now. Yeah, please. Please take three steps back. I was enjoying this. Yeah, I'm like, can I get like the non-anti-Semitic version of this fairy tale? Please. Pulse. So, that was weird. Yes. Now, that aside, what do you think about... What what did you think was interesting about this Beauty and the Beast fairy tale, you know, along the lines of the themes we've been discussing? I mean, it it's it's interesting in that like a little bit more than uh, the previous ones, or maybe even in some versions of Beauty and the Beast, is like the again it has some interesting things to say about parenthood, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like her parents are a little bit more involved slash invested in like what is happening to their daughter. Uh, Mm -hmm. in this story than they are in other variations of the Beauty and the Beast story. What do you think? Oh, I think so too. There's kind of two moments of it, which is, so when the bear first comes and is like, let me marry your daughter, Uh he doesn't take her that night. He's like, I will make you rich. And the father says, I need to check with her about this. Yeah. Which sounds really nice. And then she says, big no from me. And then the dad kind of cajoles her and guilt trips her into it. So Uh that's less good. Yeah. They had us in the first half, not going to lie. Uh-huh. But I also thought that's an interesting twist as far as the character of the daughter, because in Beauty and the Beast, you know, it's the opposite, right? Where her father gets in trouble with the owner of this castle and she sacrifices herself for him. Right. And in this one, the dad's like, would you please marry him so we can not be poor, us and also like your many siblings? And she's yes. like, uh, no. <laughs> uh-huh. But again, eventually guilt tripped into it. Right. But then, yeah, the other thing about her parents is obviously her mom. So much like Psyche, the youngest daughter gets lonely and asks to visit her family. And the bear explicitly says, so what's going to happen is you're going to go home and your mom is going to try to get you alone. And she's going to give you advice and you need to not follow it. So I would advise don't even be with her alone. Right. Very isolating. Very suspicious. And when she goes home, 
her parents are like, we're living a good life, but how are you, sweetie? And she gives them very vague answers. So her mom, in concern, pulls her aside and says, tell me everything. How are you? How is it going? What's happening? Uh-huh. It's very earnest, you know? Yeah. There is nothing malicious. Yeah. And then her mom says, this guy's very suspicious. Take this candle. Check on him. Make sure he's not an evil troll. Anti-Semitism aside. So it's a really questionable moral yeah. to be like, don't talk to your mom. Don't tell your mom anything. And don't let her give you any advice about the suspicious things your husband is doing. Yeah, this is like, this is real. This is a, in 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 the modern day, that is what I would call a red flag. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know, they spend very little time because I think this is one of those stories. So he's a bear during the day and a man at night. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it mentions really that the white bear hangs around with the daughter. Like okay. in the daytime, the way, you know, like Eros was invisible, but he hung around with Psyche. Yeah. So it really, I think there could be more work done on why the youngest daughter is motivated to go to the four corners of the earth and go to the this palace and blah, blah, blah for this guy, for this dude. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Um, that's always, I mean, that's something that I feel like I, I'm always interested in digging into again because I'm a sap is the love story. And it's like, how does this kind of relationship that starts off on this like weird, sometimes cute, sometimes not meet cute, mm-hmm. um, you know, how does it develop? Like, what is it that drives these partners to go, uh, go through so many trials to regain their significant other? Right. Yeah. And I think the story of Eros and Psyche does more in the text like yeah. in this fairy tale itself than um than this one does for sure. Uh-huh. I'm like this bear, he did make good on his promise to make your family rich. And yeah. that's all you know about him really. Yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. <laughs> mhm. And this one's interesting because it's also it has a curse like the girl who married a snake. Uh-huh. You know, it's implied the prince his stepmother is a troll. Uh-huh. Again, I don't know what's going on with that family dynamic. Yeah. Um, But she curses him. He has a wicked stepmother, which is fun, to be a bear during the day and a man at night. And the curse can only be broken if he keeps a wife for a year and she never, like, looks upon him in the darkness or whatever, which is all very specific for a curse. Right. And so it's like The Girl Who Married a Snake where it requires this kind of unconditional love and trust. But uh-huh. instead of, you know, your parent doing that for your own good and out of love for you, it's like, I went and just kidnapped a girl who was in a vulnerable position who I bribed with money. And then I got angry at her when she just didn't take me at face value and check that I wasn't intending harm on her. Yeah. It's like, let me go back and like, was there a, was there a non-disclosure clause in this, uh, in this curse? You exactly. Know? Like, probably, but I don't know. Yeah. If there wasn't, then there was a really obvious solution. Read. read. Yeah. Talk to Ashina Niev. Yeah. Come on, guys. Come on. Get, get with the program. So I like. Know. Uh, and maybe it's because this one is the kind of most recent, right? Mm-hmm. It's from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But it's the one that ticks a lot of, like, sets off a lot of warning flags for me. I'm like, mm. <laughs> As far as, like, what it's teaching. Right. Is this going to be a situation where we blame the damn Victorians? Because I'm always down to blame the Victorians. I don't know enough about Victorian Norwegians, to be sure. I mean, 
you know, I would I would guess that they probably had really similar sensibilities and or they were also I mean, because this is this this story almost has a sort of aside from the anti-Semitism, like it's got a sort of weird like, I don't know. Because the Victorian era people, not just in England, but they were really big into like Orientalism and like strange stories, you know, I'm like, even though the guys who collected the story were Norwegian, it, you know, I could imagine that maybe they were like, oh, this is an ancient story. And so therefore, and so therefore, you know, it's, it's got, it's, it's very strange and people acted differently then because, you know, kind of like the, the Victorian treatment of like King Arthur and its knights where it was very, very romanticized and like. All sorts mm-hmm. of terrible morals were passed on. Right. Yeah. yeah, that could be. Who knows? Yeah, it is a mystery. A mystery that we could solve by probably doing historical research, but we're here to talk about the fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So speaking of the fairy tale, then, um, I mean, I feel like that, just, do you feel like that sums up uh, what we have to say about this particular story? Yeah, I just want to say, like, in sum, it seems like this story is meant to teach girls, tr- like, sacrifice for your family, even when it's a bad situation you don't want to. Right. Trust your husband implicitly, and don't tell your mother the truth of your living situation or listen to her advice about bettering it. Yeah. So, yeah. Ugh. So, mixed bag there. And I guess it has a good moral, which is, like, again, like with Psyche, like, you should work to fix your wrongs and don't just wait for your husband to come back to you. Like, you know, you should try to help mend the relationship on your end, too. Yeah. In the metaphor of going to the four corners of the world. But yeah. I, I think it's overshadowed by the dubious morals, personally. Yeah, and just, like, the power dynamic. It's like, what has he done for this relationship? Psyche, uh, sorry, not Psyche, uh, youngest daughter is, like, doing all of the legwork. You know, True. what's up with that? Although I do think it's cool that they, like, they come up with the the final plan. It's like, you know, they hatch it in tandem. Like, they're like, okay, we got to do, we, we both have to do work to make this happen. Yeah. What I think you know? is funny is that, so the youngest daughter comes to see him three times in the night to try to, like, rescue him. And uh-huh. the first two, the troll stepdaughter gives him a sleeping potion uh-huh. that he falls for the second time as well. Uh-huh. And it's only because the room next door has a dungeon full of Christians who are telling him that a weeping woman is coming to visit him that he doesn't drink the third sleeping potion. God. What a doof. Yeah, seriously. But, yeah, I'm with you. It's really – it's fun that they kind of hatch it together. Although uh-huh. the plan involves – Proving that the youngest daughter is a good washerwoman, which is very desirable in a wife, I guess. I guess, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Even when it's doing cool things, it's still a little bit ugh. Yeah. Um, although I, I've, I've, I haven't read, but I know that this is a, a also a really uh, common one for people to do like YA retellings of, or you know, just novel treatments of. And so I would be mm-hmm. interested in seeing what different people. Uh, think and how they re- reinterpret this story for a modern mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah. So so with that being said, I think that wraps up our discussion of our four choices. Yeah. So time for the verdict. It is. Lindsay, what is your favorite classical Beauty and the Beast story? I think I have to go with A, Eros and Psyche. Like uh-huh. I said at the top of the episode, it's the granddaddy of a whole kind of all of Beauty and the Beast stories. And it's fun because there's a place for a romance to actually develop before the quest begins. Right. And, you know, you have the option of making Psyche's sisters very sympathetic 
Like, there's just so much um, room for movement in how uh-huh. you want to characterize it that I think it that's what really contributes to it being timeless, you know? Yeah, yeah. Different people can kind of reskin it according to the thing, and the, 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 the base of the story remains the same. Yeah, and you can kind of take focus in on the parts you that resonate, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's my verdict. What about you? What's your favorite classical Beauty and the Beast story? I, um... I think the one that I like the most is Ashina Neev, um, mm-hmm. because A, I am a big proponent of communication in relationships uh-huh. um, and the establishment of terms and, and all of that stuff. Uh, B, I'm a big fan of sticking it to the man, dad. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, like, because again, like in a lot of these stories, then, you know, like the kind of the daughters get screwed over by their fathers in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this one, the ne- then uh, Neev is like, mm, anyway, no, I don't care about your like kingship, dad. I'm going to go. I, I want to get married. Thanks. Um, well, yeah, I want to not live with a pig head. Thanks. That too. Yeah. So it's just like, um, and, you know, and so she, like she goes out and she solves a problem. And by communicating with this, this guy, you know, she, she is the one who, who selects a husband and has to convince him to kind of see past her like rough exterior, you know, mm-hmm. which is an interesting kind of flip of the gender roles. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, I think this one, uh, just because it's so different, I think this one mm-hmm. is my favorite. Yeah. Feel that. Okay. So I think that about wraps it up for this episode of When in Doubt Pixie. Mm-hmm. We hope you will join us this time next week for our mini-sode over on Patreon where we're going to be talking about the retellings of these stories and how we would retell these stories in a modern context. Right. Yeah. And also on Patreon, we have our show notes, which are free for you to look at all the sources that we use for this episode. Yes. And we also have outtakes from every single episode um there as well so please check that out if you're interested in more from us our patreon is pixie podcast yes and we would also love it if you checked out our twitter which is also pixie podcast where we are going to have a poll which uh will let you weigh in on what your favorite classical beauty and the beast story is and we would love to hear from you about this Mm-hmm. so this episode was written mostly by Lindsay jones with uh, just a tiny bit of help from Sophie Lee. Our audio production is by Elisha Bonnet, and the intro and outro music that you heard is by the awesome David Hillowitz. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.